Hello, Vinyl Lovers. I'm Antonio Staropoli. And I'm Chris Myers. And you're listening to Taste of Vinyl. It's time to dive into this one and have a lot of fun. They just, they just get worse and worse. They, they do. They're just, they, I don't know what to say anymore. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> Alright, welcome. <laughs> welcome, listeners. We've got a great episode for you today. Our guest is an author, singer, and vinyl enthusiast. He has a new book that just came out. It's called Albion's Secret History, Snapshots of England's Pop Rebels and Outsiders. Welcome, Guy. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. And uh, really good to be on the show. Thanks for having me. Thank Absolutely. you for being on. We're excited to have you on. Yeah, man. So uh, we don't know whether or not you've uh, listened to the show or not. We just assume nobody has. So... Uh, <laughs> uh, first question we ask is analog or digital oh uh instinctively i say analog definitely mm. mm-hmm. can you we like that answer can you dive a little <laughs> deeper for us this is my um nirvana in utero steve albini tribal loyalty coming straight to the fore you know given that question i'd rather be in the analog tribe I don't know. I don't know if this is going to cause a divide between us straight away, but I put no. on the spot there, and that's that's no, my tribe no, instinctively. No. Yeah, no, no. no, absolutely. I mean, hey, this is a show about vinyl, so like we definitely <laughs> we lean we definitely lean heavily towards analog cool. for sure. Um, <laughs> but uh, okay, that's fair enough, man. So, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, you just released this new book came out on March 26th. You were the singer of a band called Albanova, and you have what seems to be a very eclectic variety of vinyl and musical taste. Can you can you just tell us about all, all of that? I know that's a loaded question, but uh, maybe start with yourself. Yeah, sure. Um, I originally trained as a psychologist, and I had this kind of strange double life where I was working in a brain injury hospital in London, like a stately home, and at night, putting on eyeliner and being a singer in a band. And we had a small record deal um, back in the noughties. And interestingly enough, that's when a lot of this book is set. Um, Albion's Secret History is about the uncelebrated English artists that I think have really contributed to our sense of an identity as a country. What we often get is a lot of stuff about the Beatles, the Rolling Stones and you sure. know Oasis and bands like that, which obviously <laughs> had a huge impact, but there's just so sure. many people that don't get talked about. Yeah. And I think as someone who struggled to make their mark in the music scene myself, I have a kind of natural affiliation to those pushed to the edge a bit. Um, yeah. in, in terms of my vinyl collection, I was saying for you, I've always had huge, you know, CD collections, stuff like that. And I was saying to years, uh, for years to my partner at the time, oh, I'd love to have a, a record player. And she surprised me with just a batch of records. And it was, <laughs> it was kind of, Stuff like Ultravox and uh, Tubeway Army replicas and, and then some really eclectic stuff like old kind of ballet recordings or Peter Cook, this English comedian, mm. his comedy recordings on vinyl. So I started off with this really wild collection of vinyl, um, you know, Elton John, stuff I would, you know, m- maybe listen to once or twice. And then <laughs> since then, I've got incredibly serious and the most valuable stuff in my place is probably my vinyl collection. It's the one thing I'd be wow. scared of having stolen, that and my guitar. Um, and then now it's, um, yeah, now it's, um, I've kind of got it to the place where I've, you know, the records that you just have to have, and it really bothers you that you don't have them. 
I'm yeah. kind of oh, pretty yeah. much I'm kind of pretty much there now. So there's a lot of <laughs> there's a lot of English stuff. There's a lot of Cure. There's a lot of Bowie. Um, there's a lot of Suede, Pulp, people like that. Um, sure. So yeah, it's looking healthy. Yeah, yeah, That's I know awesome. what you mean, man. Wish is on my list. Is on yeah. my wish list. Oh, terrible puns. I love the Cure. <laughs> um, so uh, very excited for our on the platter. So you're a man of many talents, to say the least. Tell us Thank what you. led you on the path to becoming an author. Is that what you kind of always saw yourself doing? Maybe not because you started off saying that you worked in psychology and you, you know you tried to make it in the music business. So maybe that question is not that great. But uh, but w- what led you down that path? That's a cool question. Um, it's kind of you to say, but the honest answer is, is I think failure put me on the path to being a writer because <laughs> I originally wanted to be a singer in a band and have a record deal, or I thought I did, and do that full time. Um, sure, and yeah. And, and you know, just didn't make that point of that being like a lifestyle that could be sustained. Just you know, briefly had record deals and put an EP out, and it was just really strange because when I started then writing about music rather than playing it, then that was like pushing at an open door. I started to get uh, novels published quite quickly, and that started to move really fluidly. But it's a curious thing. When my dad last came to visit, he said, "Your house is more like the house of a musician than it is a writer. There's instruments, <laughs> there's records." I don't know what he was expecting, like moleskin notebooks or something. There's not a lot of that in evidence. But um, yeah, music's kind of really embedded in me. Um, I did try and make it as a musician, and it just seemed to work more naturally when I wrote about music. So it's a, it's a curious thing. That's very interesting. Just based on that answer, clearly you're a modest person. So uh, we're all in a position where, you know, musicians especially, we just you know, we love music. We have this idea of success in our heads and a lot of us don't reach that point. And, but that's okay because, you know, at least the passion is there. And I'm sure that you've released certain things that you're very proud of, as have we. And that's all that matters, man. That's it. And it led you to this path. So that's, that's also a a pro. Well, it's funny you should say that because the sort of Englishness of this is kicking in straight away because when you when you started off with a kind compliment, I was thinking, if people in England who I know play this, are they going to say at that point you should have been self-deprecating? You never just ex- <laughs> you, ne- you never just as- accept a compliment outright as though you're comfortable yeah. that you are kind of multi-talented. We just don't do that here. And if you do, you're in, yeah. you're, you're really in serious trouble at some point. So the very least that you do is you go, well, I'd like to talk about the stuff that I completely balls up. Let's have a yeah, bit of yeah. balance. It's a very English thing. Like we've yeah. got to bring that into the table. Failure was always in the room. You know, there just- must be some British in me because I can relate to that <laughs> very, very well. But anyway, does having a master's degree in psychology at all help you in writing any of the novels that you write? Oh, that's a great question. I don't know if it's the masters as as much as the experience of having just sat with people and listened to their stories and tried to kind of help them through whatever had traumatized them. I think that does help in some Mm. ways. Um, One of the reviews talked about there being a psychoanalytic dimension to it. Mm. Um, Yeah. And I I am really interested in what was going on in these people's heads when they made what I think are masterpieces. So I have a chapter about um, David Bowie after, again, you know, years of it not working out, renting this decaying mansion called Haddon Hall and um, 
recruiting the spiders from Mars and living with them full time and with his wife, giving them these crazy costumes and really constructing Ziggy Stardust. And I'm interested in what's going on in an artist's head when they put things together. And sometimes it's raw ambition and cynicism, but then that led on to people like Brett Anderson and Suede. And I'm fascinated about how Dogman Star got made. It was such a kind of combustible episode in their life. And he lived above a cult called the Mennonites who were chanting all day. And apparently oh the, the, the chants that are in Swade's Dogman Star, you know, the, um, in, at the end of We Are the Pigs, is based on the fact that they wrote this stuff in this decaying mansion and there's a cult downstairs in the cellar oh, chanting shit. away. So I'm, wow. I'm always really interested in the kind of extreme states people get in to be creative. So, I mean, it's a good question. That's a great answer. Like That is a great answer. I, I think that musicians definitely, I mean, God, talk about tortured. A lot of musicians are, are pretty tortured people and just there's a lot going on there psychologically. So it makes sense that with your background, having that kind of interest and that influence when you're writing about these things, uh, that's fascinating. Can you tell us more about books that you've written? What's inspired your most recent novel? Yeah, sure. Um, I had a novel come out last August, which was in inverted commas called Dead Rock Stars, which was a lot about how people, I think, dismissively write about people like Kirk Cobain, Kristen Pfaff, what's called that 27 Club, people like Amy Winehouse. Oh, right. Yeah. As though, yep. um, you know, their death is the only show in town, that their death is what's the interesting thing and they get very conspiratorial about about that which they may be something too and yeah exactly and and with dead rock stars it was about a young boy uh brought up in the middle of nowhere in england like i was i was brought up on a island off the south coast called the isle of Wight, and he had an older sister who was part of the camden music scene of the 90s a kind of one of those kinder whore bands and um i had a lot of fun making up this whole fictional band history and then his um, sister tragically dies you know you might say she's a member of that club but what he does is through the novel he finds her diary um and over the course of a summer in which he you know falls in love and has wild parties and stuff like that he finds that his sister through her diary is guiding him through all of these transformative experiences so what it was doing is taking me back i'm sure it's the same for the two of you and i'd be interested to hear so that period of time where music really really shapes you like, I don't know what yeah. it's like for the two of you, but when I was 16, 17, 18, any copy of The Enemy, any like CD I could get hold of that my friends had, we were making mixtapes. They just all meant an, an unreasonable amount to us. And I wanted to get back yeah. in that space for that book. That makes so much sense. Yeah. 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 And, and it ties into what you were just talking about. You're really interested in knowing like what is going on in a person's psyche, a musician's kind of process and like what's going on in their minds as they're being creative. And so you you came up with this this person who clearly was going through something very difficult in his life. And it was very yeah. much transformative and influenced that person's, you know, musical output. And yeah. very interesting. Tell us about your music. Because, you know, we're talking, <laughs> you know, we're talking about a fictional band. We're, we're talking about other other people's music. So let's talk about what goes on in your mind. You're in a band called Albanova. Are you guys yeah. still still together? Well, we might be putting the recordings that we made out that were going to be an album out under the name uh, Bella Tomica. Holly Martorello, oh. who was the singer in the band, um, she has a record label and she releases some great stuff. So it might be coming out cool. eventually through that. But it was interesting. Um, uh, yeah, well, that would be the dream. That, yeah. I, mean, to me, <laughs> I would love that, to see. Yeah. That's, as, that's as real as it can be. But it's an interesting question because um, it was a very English band. You know, I'm not 
you know, don't worry, I'm not kind of nationalistic in any kind of way, you know, very sort of <laughs> It's okay wing, if but, you are. Well, no, especially don't worry. If, especially, we love, <laughs> listen, well, we love our Brits. Well, what was, <laughs> true. What, was what was kind of curious with um, Albanova is that we were trying to reclaim this sort of, in a rather pretentious way, this sense of a lost Englishness. So there was a lot of, in the lyrics, a lot of kind of chandeliers and violins and masquerade balls and uh, oh, vines wow. and... Um, and, and our singer, she'd wear a fur coat. And it, there was a lot of trying to reclaim a sense of lost England through the lyrics. And one of the things uh-huh. which I suppose is unsurprising because I'm, I'm now a writer is I was quite verbose with my lyrics. I would cram a lot of visuals into my words, which made it quite hard to sing. Um, but uh-huh. at the time, the record label that we signed up to had this term Dickensian pop. And they they sort of tried to bill us as a kind of Dickensian sort of street urchin type kind of band <laughs> so we had this tension going on because i wanted to be in suede i wanted it to be like a glam rock ziggy stardust thing and the rest uh-huh. of the band had very different ideas so there was this kind Interesting. of melting pot yeah. that was going on which might have been all part of the confusion but um sure it, it's funny that i'm now writing about english music because the music that i did write when i was writing it was incredibly quintessentially english or trying to be at least that's sure. fantastic. Can we listen to Albanova on like Spotify or is any of that stuff out there? Yeah, well on, on YouTube there's um there's some videos that are up and you can see oh, okay. you, you can see the garb that I'm talking about that we used to wear. Um, oh, I'm so it will, excited. It will be on Spotify at some point, but um yeah, it, you know, I shouldn't I shouldn't dismiss my younger self. I don't, were the two of you in bands? Or are in we bands? are in a band. Uh, yeah. Oh wow. So he, can you tell me so about I play the drums and Chris is uh, the vocalist. Um, yes. You know, it's funny how, how you were talking about how you kind of had this idea in your head about what, you know, what you wanted your band to be, kind of a Ziggy Stardust kind of a thing. That's and I know me, that yeah. there are six people in our band and I yeah. know that there are six different, very different personalities. So although but, there is there are common threads, you know, throughout – uh, there definitely is. You can tell that everybody in the band has their own idea of yeah. like what the band should sound like, what the band should That's so be. So interesting, and, and it so, makes yeah, it makes for very it makes for interesting music. It's hard to yes, yes. to say you know like look. I mean, we're 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 a rock band. You know, I, plain and simple. If we're gonna just call it a band uh, right. you know if we're going to define a genre but but if you wanted to get into subgenres we could just <laughs> throw a yeah. whole bunch what, out there what's your what, what's your vision of it chris what's your vision of the band cuz i can tell just from your your voice i can tell you've got a vocalist voice i think <laughs> i it's funny yeah when i was younger all i knew was really like what was on the radio and i've said this before and it wasn't till i heard bands like yeah like sex pistols and the ramones and like no effects really? and, punk and pop punk and stuff like that that i really was like this is the music that i like i want to hear more of this like i want to hear stuff i want to hear the bands that influenced those bands that became punk and stuff like that so i dove into you know to that tunnel and that hole of all that music (laughs) which is just so good it's so good but uh yeah so really and antonio knows this if you know newfound glory yeah that that kind of whiny like pop punk voice is kind of what it's kind of what i wanted to go for and i when i joined with them yeah they 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 cut that off like immediately i mean the first ep the first ep actually can you can hear that nasally kind of whiny thing that's true 
which I don't mind. The second EP is definitely a little bit closer to, you know, what maybe I thought the band, the band should sound like. Right. But like, even now listening back, I don't even care for any of the, and I shouldn't say this, right. I, I, I do care for the stuff we've released because we put so much time and effort and and work into it. And, and we, I, I love it, but like, just like the way that my music tastes have evolved and guy, good job on, on flipping the interview on us. Uh, yes, (laughs) (laughs) just briefly I did. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) but you know, to, to say that, you know, my music tastes have evolved dramatically, especially because of vinyl, you know, I think that going forward, I want our music to sound very different from anything that we've ever done. Okay. And, uh, so yeah, so much more, if I'm going to put it, God, I want it well, to sound a little bit more thricey, uh, a lot more thricey, a lot more okay. brand new. Your favorite weapon era, which you know, I'm not sure if you're familiar with with either yeah. of those, but yeah. uh, that's where I'm at. And very much say anything. And these are these are bands that I keep constantly saying on this podcast. And I am so sorry to anybody who <laughs> who listens <laughs> and is sick of hearing me say you know the, name these bands. Deftones, Deftones, Nails, yeah. but none, yeah. none of that yeah. stuff is yeah. is is entering my mind in as far as like what I want our music to be. But yeah, to cut it off there, that's that's where cool. I'm at right yeah, now. Good yeah. yeah, yeah. I personally think, and like you know, not to, but uh, so the band's called Another Distraction. I don't know if we mentioned that to you, guy. If you want no, to no, listen yeah. to it at some point, I will. Definitely. But. Uh, you know, like Antonio was saying, we have two EPs and there's what everyone considers success. And then you have your own personal view of what success is. And right. mm. to me personally, recording those two albums in where we did and with, with who we did with John yeah. Clario, to me, that was like that was enough. a huge success to me because Absolutely. it was like, yeah. wow. Yeah. Like I record, we helped, like, you know, we recorded these two really cool albums, like professionally recorded and we put them out there. And I, to me, that was my, like that was my own personal success. Yeah. I'm with you, man. Don't you just feel like you're offloading something? Like when you do a recording session and you get a bunch of your songs down and you know it's a kind of a decent quality, I feel like, honestly, without trying to sound you know pretentious, I kind of feel lighter in some way. Like I remember when I was in a band when I was about 17 and you know, I, would, mm-hmm. I would form bands and get on stage, you know, when I barely knew how to play, you know, even hold the instrument properly. And yeah. I, at the time, I just had a sense of, I want to get everything down. And I, I really felt like oh, I could get you know hit by a bus at some moment, and the, these songs were. And it wasn't even that I thought the songs were that great. It's just like I had to offload it somehow. So I, I do understand there. that. Yeah, totally. It's a good way of putting it. Antonio. Absolutely. But tell us, uh, have you know? Did you guys tour at all when you guys were signed? Yeah, we did. Um, we we did a lot of. I, I don't know what it's like over there, but here it's if you don't play in London, you're not being very serious. There's a kind of. Um, <laughs> There's a there's a sort of brutal thing that goes on where you can go and see a band in in a city like Newcastle where I was from up in the north and they can mm-hmm. be absolutely killing it you know everyone they can have a huge audience and people really love them the local magazines buy them but no one's going to give them an advance and sign them I lived up there so what I would do is I would have to get the train I had no money at all I'd have to get the train down to London and we'd do showcases and we'd support you know quite sort of big signed bands and stuff and um at the time I didn't have any money and. I would I would hide in the toilet of the train. I didn't I, you know I didn't have a ticket to get down to London. It was literally the shittiest way of getting down to the capital. But that's what you yeah. had to do to get signed. So you know there's a lot to be said for all of that spit and sawdust years. You know I think that it's made a bit of a difference when I've been with Albion Secret History going into these artists' lives 
it starts really about the 70s with bands like uh, Kate Bush and David Bowie and takes us very much through like the Britpop scene of the 90s. And I'm just a student of, of that stuff. You know, I'm sure you guys are the same, but I, I wasn't sort of in isolation. I was reading the, the music papers every week and these people really informed me. And it's funny because we were talking about you getting to offload what's going on creatively when you record an album. Mm-hmm. Yes. With Albion's Secret History, I really got to offload my passion and love for these artists that I don't think are hugely appreciated. So that I've talked about people like Bowie and there's a lot of like the Smiths, but part of it has been I've been interviewing musicians that are part of the book. And I interviewed um, a band called The Long Blondes and yep. their singer Kate Jackson and their songwriter Dorian. And um, I'm interviewing on Monday, which I'm really excited about, a really amazing electronic artist called Gazelle Twin. Um, she's kind of made some sort of massive waves. And I interviewed Gary Newman earlier on this week, which is absolutely amazing. Yep. And um, yeah, it, it's, it's been pretty mind-blowing because at the time, these were the people that I looked up to, particularly people like the Long Blondes, and I wanted to be in my own career as a musician doing what they were doing. And now yeah. they're telling me they're off their pedestal because the band's kind of finished. They're telling me what it was really like and, and yeah. what the experience was really like. And we kind of get to compare notes on how did it work, how did it not work, and that's been great for me. That's so fantastic. So that's you get really to really neat. get kind of a peek into that world, especially since you probably had at one point you said you were, you know, you were such a fan of these bands and, you know, you probably were like wondering when you were younger, like, man, like what's, what's that like, you know? Well, well, one of the things that, that was huge is the first story I ever had published was based on, you know, do you know Tubeway Army Replicas, Gary Newman's first album? It has this cover of it on the front cover. It's him uh, under a, under a naked light bulb and he's got a very pale face. He's wearing a black shirt and a tie. That image really inspired the first story, the first novella I ever had published. So when I got to talk to him the other day, that was kind of one of the first things that I said. But what I really took away from it, um, which I found mind-blowing, is his kind of sense of insecurity. And I really hope you won't mind me saying this, but um, uh-huh. he he's won Ivor Novellos. He's sold over 10 million records, but he's was incredibly worried about, what, what do you think of the new single? Do you think the fans are going to like it? What's your kind of reaction to it? And I was just, you know, I, I think it's extraordinary. I think it's really layered. And I, I found it amazing that you can achieve what someone like him has achieved and you uh-huh. don't feel like you've cracked it. You know, he, he's, he's yeah. constantly in competition with himself. And, and I think, yeah. and I said this to him, I think that that's one of the reasons he's so good. There's no arrogance there at all. It's just he's someone who needs to keep moving, wants to keep proving himself and keeps offloading what he's doing. And he, and then he evolves and he moves forward as an artist. Sure. Wow. That's a wonderful way of like going about your craft, kind of leaving that ego behind. And there is a sense, I think with a lot of artists with like your in constant competition with yourself, which I guess is better than being in constant competition with any other artist. Cause you know, how, how do you do that? Yeah, I agree. Right. Yeah, that's that's very interesting. Uh, I was going to say, it's interesting because you're always looking to make the next album even better than the last one. And I think right. you know your fans and anyone who listens to the albums expect at least the same quality as the last album, if not better. So sure. you tend, I, I imagine not only, not only are you putting pressure on yourself to do, to excel, and move, like you said, move forward, but your fans are looking for the same. But, and so it's hard, I imagine, for artists to also then, you don't want to alienate your fans, obviously, yeah. you don't want to lose your fans. But at the same time, you also have to think, it's my music. I have to focus on what I want to do with it and where I want to go next without, well, like, you know, 
straying too far away from what the fans want as well. I think that's such a great point because um, one of the things that Gary Newman said is that he really lost his way at one point and he felt, he, he kept kind of saying over and over again, I've not got a great voice, like I can't really play any instrument very well. Um, I was talking about how I loved the song Our Friends Electric and he was saying, well, it's just two songs stitched together and I make a mistake on one of the notes and I, I keep it in. And I was saying, oh, that's the note that gives me the goosebumps. You know, he sang what note oh, it was. Oh, wow. And anyway, wow. I was saying, so, so I, he was saying that when he got kind of lost at one point, he just sort of retreated in his own records. He, his voice wasn't at the fore. He's in his words, he'd try and get in better, you know, more technical vocalists. And his wife at the time, Gemma said, look, the reason this isn't working is the fans want you. And it's like you said, like it might not, yeah. it's not about being the most technically proficient. The Gary Newman fans, like the Bowie fans, they want Barry, they want Gary Newman. So when he came back to the fore and he did his own thing, that that's your guidance system, and if you if you if you're turning on that off that guidance system, you get completely lost, and you just right. have to kind of inhabit what you are and be your own creature. And um, exactly. I found that I found that really mind blowing because with this book, um, you know, you kindly mentioned previously I've written novels in which music's featured. This is the first time in which I'm not hiding behind characters. I'm really saying this is my guy, my opinion of these bands. This is directly what I think, and I get into other yeah. stuff like kind of politics and. Um, things like that as well but um finding your voice and being able to own it and then it's starting to work i mean what a powerful combination of things if they can happen you know it's that and it's all it's timing too and it's like you know yeah. it's amazing to see how many artists have really been successful in doing that and and how there's so many bands who have maybe not reached that pillar of like you know they sold double multi-platinum albums or whatever but they're just as they're just as good. Mm. But what happened that they didn't reach the same level of success mm. that the their counterpart bands did? Artists like, timing just get and people into their, you know. he- their heads, man. Yeah, like you said, like Gary Newman was, you know, trying to be all you know proficient and was trying to be more technical, and yeah. it, it, and it's just like you don't have to be that, you know. And, and I think we lose ourselves, you know, in in that yeah. kind of like you, you're you're overthinking your. I get that though. You want to you want to be better at your craft, but that, you yeah. also want to find kind of a middle ground where you're not, you know, you're not producing something that's just not you. That's not Good, coming right. from yeah. from a place that's genuine. You know, it's come. It's more coming from a place of look what I can do. Right. Well, the other you know? the other layer to it, I think you, what you've said is you've articulated that so beautifully. I totally agree. It's actually more complex than I was first stating. You're, you're right. There's like a depth to it. One of the things that I found very interesting is that uh, he drew a bit of analogy with David Bowie, who became famous really gradually. And again, who I write about a lot in the book, um, he was a few albums in before things started to stick with, um, you know, uh, changes and uh, hunky yep. dory and that kind of stuff. And whereas yeah. Gary Newman's first single became absolutely huge and. And I've been I've been writing a few novels and and things have kind of I'm starting to see now there being a real change in, in the reaction and I kind of feel like I've got over a bit of a hump. But one of the things Newman said, Gary uh, Newman said, is that um, you don't want things to happen instantly. So he he would keep a dossier on journalists and who would be sympathetic and who to pitch to and um, how to oh. you know make an impact. And he said it was all it was all for naught because the first single came out and it was absolutely huge. And he said, my big <laughs> advice, my big advice to anyone would be try to avoid that happening because you, you just, again, on this, on this other level, you have no guidance system. You don't know. Um, this is his words. Obviously I've not experienced it. You, you don't yeah. know who to trust, who's being sincere. 
if people are criticizing you are they being genuine and whereas someone like david bowie who's uh, had to really inch along does know and i found sure. that kind of mind-blowing to be honest with you wow. i'm still getting my head around it actually. that is amazing things that you don't think about this interview that you did with with uh gary newman is there are we going to be able to i guess read it watch it i don't know yeah it's going to come out on uh, my publisher's channel they're called zero books they have an amazing yes. channel uh, run by a guy called doug lane and um the interview with kate jackson from the long blondes is already on there and the gary newman one's dropping on tuesday um cool and i'm still in i'm still in that space so i will stop going on about it but um no no yeah, that's, yeah, it's out that's on tuesday on right. youtube on youtube okay fantastic so and it's part um, of the series that's okay so great so it is on youtube and we can we can actually go and watch it we just need to search for i guess gary newman guy mankowski interview or yeah exactly yeah uh, guy, maybe guy go mankowski. to your publisher's channel yeah go to the zero books zero with a as in the, the digit zero zero books youtube channel um and yeah guy mankowski gary newman cool yeah, to me, it's kind of mind blowing that I had that interview here in this room, and now I'm talking to you guys, and you're in different places in America. And the thought that your viewers might then watch that in America—it's just amazing, isn't it? Technology is pretty great. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it has its pitfalls, but um, man, it's also pretty—you know—the way it connects people in such ways. Yeah. Uh, it yeah. really has made the world such a smaller place, and it's fantastic. That's really yeah, I agree. Neat. It's analog, guys. We acknowledge that. <laughs> <laughs> Now, you know, we've asked this question before, but everyone's got their own process. But is being an author something that helps you when you write lyrically or is it, is it a totally separate process for you? And you, you may have kind of given us a little bit, you know, earlier you were talking about how verbose you can be <laughs> uh, when you're writing lyrically. Uh, so there may be an influence there, but, um, but you know, tell, tell us in your own words, please. Sure. Well, I think... I'm a writer more than anything else. I think, you know, creative types, we all do things in different domains, like, you know, music as well as. But um, I think even when I was a singer in a band, I was a writer more than anything. What really excited me was the lyrics. And I remember sometimes I'd be in different bands and I'd be really agonizing over a certain line. And sometimes mm. members of the bands would be like, no one listens to lyrics, no one cares. And I'd be like, if that's true, I'm done because that's really what's driving me. I'm a kind of Leonard Cohen, you know, trying to yes. put across some sort of thing. So what would often happen in the early days is they'd be stories. So I remember writing in, in Albany over a band, um, a song called Three Fountains, and it had this whole concept of a party taking place in a mansion and there being three fountains there and one represented the past, the present and the future. And trying to put all that oh. into into a lyric is difficult enough, you know. Uh, and then what would eventually happen yeah. is I could use that idea and it became a novel. And I really right. realized, look, I don't have to shoehorn everything into three verses and a chorus and an outro. If I really yeah. want to be literary, let's write stories. Let's write novels. Be literary. So, so I, so exactly. So I feel more comfortable with the freedom that you get with, with that longer form. Of, I, sure. I'm really interested in setting an atmosphere and, you know, I know we've been talking a bit about uh, The Cure and Disintegration, and we're going to talk a bit about that. But to me, a lot of the albums that I love, David Bowie's Low, Smashing Pumpkins Adore, Cure's Disintegration, it has a certain atmosphere that's palpable. And I oh, love yeah. trying to build that with words, and I love music that does that. And one of the reasons I love vinyl is you have the gatefold, and you have all of the art. And it's like a lavish thing you can yes. live with. You know, like, right? I'm, well, we're on radio, so I can't show, but like in my flat now is vinyls all that's over okay. the place. I like to live with those panels around me and on the wall it's like to me it's immersing myself in them kind of like portals so all this stuff's you know pretty big for me you know 
Isn't it wonderful how we all just, we all have our own way of experiencing music and art, but it, it connects us in such a way, just as you were explaining that, it just, honestly, this sounds corny, but it brought so much joy to me. Because it it really did because I can relate, you know, I know exactly what you mean. And although I'm not, you know, I'm not a writer, uh, the way that you're, you're able to express yourself in that art and and create the atmosphere and and all this, I I, I live for that. I absolutely live for that. And it's, and it's, it's so wonderful to hear and speak to like-minded people about these types of things because what is there to life? What like yeah, really? Totally what, like what, what? What is there to life other than connecting? And what better way to connect through music and through writing and just trying to understand what another person is going through and just feeling? What better drug is there than music, man? You know, for it's me, it, it puts you in a totally different state of mind just by hitting the play button, putting the needle down on a record you are taken to a different place and it's because of that atmosphere that's created by these people that are trying to convey this message, convey this feeling to you, you know, in, in this moment in time that they've experienced it and they're trying to make you experience something. Yeah, beautifully Fucking put, amazing. Man. Yeah, beautifully put. Thank it's, you. Uh, I, I think I just blacked out for a second. Yeah, awesome. <laughs> no, but you're, you're absolutely right, though. I, I'm pretty sure uh, that music is considered the universal language, meaning that like it doesn't matter what language the lyrics are written in or whatever. You can just by the sounds itself, you can feel yeah. what is, yeah, you know, what is going, kind of musically through the sounds. Yeah, yeah exactly. And for, for sure. And I can't imagine that there's one person in the world that would say that I hate music. <laughs> I, I've never heard that. I've heard somebody actually say, <laughs> like, I don't listen to music and I just, I don't, I don't get it. But look to each, to each his own, but uh, that, that, you, that's you raise, crazy. You raise a good point, Chris, because when, when you were both just talking there, I was thinking, I've always had this distinction in my mind between people like yourself, like, like you said, it's amazing to talk to real people who love music and, people who genuinely have a passion for music. I, I find that yes. a real privilege. And the fact that other people might listen is absolutely amazing. But I also, I make a distinction between people like us and then people that kind of see it as an, um, music as an accessory to an experience, like a cool oh, thing. Oh yeah. You like, know, like, I'm rock, like, like I'm in my car with the top down and the cool thing would be to have some music on right now. That's different yeah, to me right. who sits too deeply in the music and thinks it's uh-huh. a, like a world I could potentially try and force into reckoning. Um, uh-huh. So uh, <laughs> I kind of think there's people that <laughs> there's people that have it as sure. an accessory and there's, and then there's us. And I know that sounds yeah. a bit snobby, but I, I'm really not, I don't no. care. Okay. No, no. You're, there's casual listeners, like you know. Yeah. That's what you're, you're talking right. about. You're talking about people who who just, you know, are are like, yeah, music's cool, like you know, whatever. And it's almost like a God. I don't want to get into this, but like, I feel like that's a product of the disposable nature of mm. pop music in the industry. If that makes sense. Well, I think also there's there's degrees of the sensibilities have gradations within them. So, for instance, my right. mum loves Barry White. What she likes is music mm. that is beautiful. She likes music that's soulful. So anything right. that I like, like Nirvana or Bowie, she doesn't have an avant-garde sensibility. So she doesn't um, she doesn't get with the idea that something's being ugly deliberately. So something like the Pixies, sure. my mum once <laughs> said to me, why does he scream when he's got such a nice voice? She doesn't get the avant-garde. So that's not sure. to say her love of Barry White is in any way 
you know, inferior to mine, but sure, there's a hell of a lot of pleasure that comes with enjoying things being ugly as well as beautiful. To me, that's definitely yeah. The juxtaposition, like there's a beauty that comes from the ugliness anyway. Yeah. So it's it's all ends up being beautiful anyway. Yes, <laughs> well said. The beautiful isn't quite as beautiful without the ugly. You right. know what I mean? So there's it this really, there's this yeah. balance. And it reflects real life. I mean, it just re, you know, it's a it's a reflection oh, absolutely. of what you know, whatever they're feeling at the moment, or just life in general. And uh, and also, the Pixies are a phenomenal band. I, I love the Pixies. What, what are you What are you listening to right now? Like, what um, What do you find yourself, you know, kind of putting on on the record? You know, a lot of days. Is there anything in particular? Um, yeah, that's a good question. I'm really listening a lot to um, this artist called Gazelle Twin, who had an album. Um, yes. uh, Charlotte and the Tim had a listening party for it last night, um, an album called Pastoral. And we've been talking about this whole kind of English subject, which is obviously big with Albion's secret history. On Pastoral, it's a kind of, um, it is incredibly beautiful at times. She has an amazing voice, but it's also, uh, I think, a deliberately kind of ugly record in that it's reflecting some of the upheavals that have been going on in this country since Brexit. So I've been listening to a lot of Gazelle Twin. Who else have I listened to? What have you guys been listening to? I'm going to I'm gonna play for time for a moment there while I think what else is on my mind. Because it's such Fair a personal enough. question, isn't it? I've been listening to Lana Del Rey's it new is. album. Um, I, um, I might be on oh, my nice. own with that one, but I really like, um, she's very kind of narrative and atmospheric. I've been listening to uh, Chemtrails Over the Country Club. Yeah, Sweet. I've been listening That's to The Cure. Album. And I'm always listening to Nirvana, right? It's like my daily medicine. That's so good. I love that. I feel like what what I'm, I've been listening to a lot lately is uh, God. People are going to want to kill me when they hear this. Say anything is a real boy. I, I just constantly listen to that. I think oh, really? Max Bemis is a fucking goddamn genius, uh, <laughs> and, and he's talk about a tortured person. And uh, I've been listening a lot actually to the to the new singles that AFI have released for their new record that's coming out in June called Bodies. Oh yeah. Um, yep. And it's very, I, I kind of gave up on them when the Blood album came out and whatever else was coming out um, after that because I just didn't, it was such a departure, at least vocally for me, that I just, I wasn't, I wasn't feeling it. But this new stuff is very much Crash Love era for me. And I love that album. So I'm just like really enjoying that. Yeah. Good choice. That's awesome. I guess for me, I mean, like uh, Foo Fighters, I mean, Color and Shapes. Foo Fighters, Color and Shape is one of my favorite albums yeah. of theirs. Um, so that's almost always on Oasis. What's the story? Morning Glory. Oh, really? Yeah, I love that album. And the funny thing is, is I don't know how many people would agree with me, but I, Champagne Supernova is possibly one of my favorite songs. That's a great yeah. tune, man. Do you like, theirs. Do you like it's just so good. Do you like Definite, Definitely Maybe? Do you like that? Yes. Yeah. I definitely, uh, yeah. I was gonna say I, I definitely, definitely love maybe that. like that. <laughs> definitely maybe like that. Yeah, no, that's never, that's that's a phenomenal album. Yeah, and the other one I really like is um, I don't know if you know the band Mogwai. They recently hit number one. Oh, yes, yeah. The, the, yes. Their, their new album is just unbelievable. There's a song called Richie Sacramento on it, and it's so exciting because they were the first band I ever saw, and it was I went to see them at London Astoria, and it was like ear bleeding. It was I remember at one point going to the bathroom. <laughs> literally, I was about fifteen. And getting tissue paper and stuffing it into my ears because I couldn't handle oh, how loud it was. And that sense of like sensory deprivation of just not being able to handle the white noise 
that was my first gig. So sure. everything since then has seemed so tame. And then them getting to number one recently is is just crazy for me because it's like the real outsiders kind of storming the ramparts. So um, yeah, Mogwai yeah. as well, definitely. Absolutely. That's awesome. Yeah, they're Mogwai and Lana Del Rey. <laughs> yes, hey. I'm actually well. I'm actually wearing a Lana Del Rey shirt. Are oh, you? really? And I'm I wearing am. a Nirvana shirt, which you actually had complimented. Yeah. I'm, in, I'm in great company. I, see it, but I really think yeah, I'm in great company. It's like, that's fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Same, same. So, so, do you yeah. listen to music when you write or do you write, you know, do you prefer silence when you're writing? That's an, I think you've just intuited something there because the only, that's so funny you said that because the only music I listen to when I write is Mogwai. I have to listen to stuff that doesn't have <laughs> sound. It's so interesting that you say. that you would ask that after what I just said. That's so uh, fascinating. That's great. I mean, it you was just the next question there, that we had. That's we so funny. Yeah, yeah. That's what that ends up being. It wasn't. Uh, <laughs> trust me, it was. It wasn't, it wasn't as intuitive like as that. you think. It was not planned that way. But you're I, either very perceptive, or you've picked up on something you don't know you picked up on. I think it it's was serendipitous. Possible. Maybe, may, a, perhaps. I love it. It was a planned question, but not planned for after what you said. So yeah, the, it's interesting how the that listeners are going to think the listeners are going to think we sort of cheesily fudged that. But I know yeah. that's just weird that that just happened. Yeah, yeah. Because I was just thinking that's the next step of this conversation, but they won't know that. Like, <laughs> we are, and we were like, we kind of did. That's fantastic. Yeah. We're tapping into something we don't we we don't yeah. quite understand. <laughs> so normally we, we ask our guests, you know, whether there's a particular record that they tend to constantly go back and spin, which we do want to know. But we're also interested in knowing if there's a book that you've read that you like to go back and read over and over again because it's your favorite. I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll try and keep things simple. I think Jeff Buckley's Grace is one that I go back to a lot. And there's a book by David Brown called Dream Brother, which has alternate chapters about Jeff Buckley's life. and his dad, Tim Buckley's life. And I do find myself for some strange reason, I have a weird sense of kinship with him. I find myself going back to the chapters at the end of his life when he was recording my sweetheart, the drunk. So I'd say Jeff Buckley's grace. And then the corresponding book dream brother, um, but also heavier than heavier than heaven. The, um, Kurt Cobain book is uh, just yeah. devastatingly powerful. I just find it unbelievable that, you know, Toby Vale, who's, kind of dumped him and a lot of Nevermind is about is sleeping on his floor while it's becoming huge you know what, what was going on in his life is I, re I really think every artist should read about Kurt Cobain because he's not necessarily yeah. someone who you want to emulate but he is someone you can learn a huge amount from I've, I find myself learning from Kurt Cobain all the time does that make sense yeah, definitely it's so funny about Nirvana you know because for me personally you know, I grew up in the era where Nirvana, you know, was huge and Smells Like Teen Spirit was just constantly on the radio. And I got really? to a point where I was almost just, God, I was just sick of it. I was just like, man, I can't, I don't want, I, I don't want to listen to Nevermind. I don't care to listen to Nevermind. I had it on CD when, you know, uh, MP3 players became a thing. I didn't care to, to put it on as part of my library. It became crushingly familiar, didn't it? Yeah. And you know something? It took a while. But when I, I guess, reintroduced myself to Nirvana in a way I, where I, I, I guess it was through documentaries of Kurt Cobain, of Nirvana, um, I just, I, I think that I started to perceive the band and Kurt Cobain in a, in a very different way. And 
I had this all of a sudden kind of newfound respect Mm. and I started listening to the music a little differently. And now I have just a reverence for him and the music. And, you know, I, I strive, I'm like, I, I have to have in utero, like in utero is like one of the only albums I don't have on vinyl. Uh, so it's just like, you know, like I've got it now it's, I went from like not caring about having it on my, you know, MP3 player years ago to like, I got to have their shit on vinyl, you know, uh, (laughs) you know, I have to have all their records. So it's very interesting, the kind of progression that I've had personally with that band, but I, I know exactly what you're talking about. I, I'm, I really... I'm a bit kind of, I'm a bit daft about Nirvana and, and, and Kurt Cobain. It's just, um, you know, you were talking about the Foo Fighters earlier on, Chris, and I'm a really big fan. Yeah. Uh, I really, really love the Foo Fighters. I think there's an intensity and a, and a grain to Kurt's voice that's got a kind of a pain to it that, that yeah. brilliant yes. as Dave Grohl is, it, it, it doesn't have. And I think it's lacking. Right. That, it, it's yeah. inter- It's interesting because I think why, why is one person scream? seem to have slightly more emotional resonance than another. And the fact that you two seem to agree with me about that, I think there's very few music fans that would pick up on the difference between one man's scream and another. Uh, there's oh just God. something more in Kurtz for some, for me. It's not to invalidate anyone's pain. Because, mm. I mean, let's, you Completely. know, Kurt Cobain and Dave Grohl, I'm sure Dave Grohl has a, a lot of pain as well, but maybe mm. the level, the level of pain that Kurt Cobain and like maybe depression and like the the depths of pain that he went through was just far greater than what Dave has and somehow that really came through that's possible uh, i also think maybe that there's just, just something maybe it's genetic you know what I mean? Well, when I listen yeah, to the, too. I'm guessing you guys have both seen the montage of Heck film, which I just, I was oh just going to mention. I just, I just have such a, I just, sat, I have such a big. It's so good. It's such a kind of a part of me that film because I think that you're onto something there, Chris. Because I think that what I suspect that what that film taught me is that Kurt was using the materials that you can have as an artist, whether or not it's these disturbing paintings or his music. He, he just had to express himself all the time. But he kind of yes. found real life so painful, he was trying to live through artistic materials. And I, and I yeah. absolutely love Dave Grohl. There's no diss here like whatsoever. But I think he's just no, a slightly no. different, he's a slightly different creature in that respect. It's like, um, yes. Kurt Cobain, everything he did was kind of art. And, um, and, and I, that's why I think the montage of Heck film is, is so amazing because every material that he had left behind, every demo, every collage, you know, his art is brought to life in a way that I just find it so moving. You know, the bits when he's a kid and they have Nirvana versions done on xylophone, like I have to kind of skip bits. <laughs> I'm like, I can't handle this right now. It's too beautiful. <laughs> like, you know. Um, oh my goodness. I know <laughs> yeah. what you mean. I've watched that movie several times and probably five or six times. And uh, dude, you're so right, man. There's definitely those, you know, those bits where, you're hearing that in in that form, and you're just like, "Fuck, man!" Even us repressed Englishmen, you know, we get it. When it comes to Nirvana, <laughs> we feel it we just the, the same. Feeling. Like he broke through something, didn't he? Yeah, he certainly he, did. We, we've been talking there about Nirvana. One of the bands I talk about a lot in the book is Joy Division. I think the same is true with Ian Curtis. Like so, so that was the next step from the kind of the Gary Newman discussion. Is is um, I talk a lot about Ian Curtis and I get quite weird about it as a kind of a channel for something. A few of those bands in the Manchester scene, like The Fall, they seem to be channeling like an other thing 
through their performance and, and how possessed he seemed to be. Um, and if you look at the lyrics, what I think so fascinating to me about Joy Division is that there's a literary intelligence behind it in the way there was with Nirvana as well, where this is a guy who's yeah. incredibly well read and has some incredibly far out literary ideas. He's influenced by authors like J.G. Ballard, but it's done in a punk way. It's so primal. It felt channeling to me. I was going to ask you if you, and I'm so glad that you, you basically answered my question b- before I had to ask it because, you know, you were, <laughs> you were talking, you know, so much about Nirvana very passionately about Kurt and everything. And I just thought to myself, well, I, I'm wondering if there's an artist, a British artist that you feel the same way about, because that's really what Albion's secret history is about. It's about England's kind of music scene and, and uh, the culture that it influenced. There's not one that ties together in the same way, but there's a few, for instance, uh, I don't know if you guys know Tricky. He had an album called Maxine Quay. Tricky is one of them. Joy Division's one of them. Brett Anderson Suede is one of them. I can't really think of anyone other than Ian Curtis that has that sense of the primal. Uh, with the English sure. artists, I find that there's different things going on. W- what David Bowie did with each persona kind of spoke to me in, in a way. What Brett Anderson did with Suede, where his lyrics are very kind of apocalyptic, that spoke to me in a way. So I've got component yeah. parts in there. But in terms of someone tying it all together in a Picasso-style way. Yeah, Kurt's on my mind right now. PJ Harvey's another one. Absolutely huge for me. Nice. Yeah, and there's a a chapter on her. I think it's interesting how Kurt with Polly, he's assuming a character in a very disturbing way. And I'm preoccupied in the book a lot with people like David Barry and PJ Harvey and Kate Bush who would have characters for their thoughts and feelings. And David Barry would filter things through his characters. That seems to be quite an English thing to do, to have to yeah. express yourself in a, in a removed way in some sense, you know? Yeah, I think sure. maybe that's probably some kind of defense mechanism. Yeah. I think maybe if we look too deeply inwards, we may scare ourselves. And yeah. uh, perhaps that's a, that's a way of expressing what's happening without completely, <laughs> you Lana know. Lana Del Rey uh, does uh, that as well. Down. Yeah, you know, yeah, I, yes. I feel like when she, on Mariner's apartment complex, when she talks about, you know how she talks about Elvis or Jesus or Marilyn? I really feel like she's sure. talking about the people that are incredibly important to her, that have shaped her. But she's doing it that often through a character. I, I don't get a sense that that's anyone other than Elizabeth Grant talking, you know? Yeah. Sure. Uh, well, Guy, we have to say thank you for answering our questions. Everyone check out Albion's Secret History. Uh, if you have enjoyed anything that we've talked about in the discussion here with Guy, I'm sure you're going to find some wonderful things to read within that book and some great insights that uh, you'll take away. So we all know what that means. It is now time for On the Platter. Oh, God, it's so good. Mmm, so good and tasty. Today, we are talking about The Cure Disintegration, which was released back in uh, May of 1989. So. The Cure, very interesting band. You know, we've kind of talked about it throughout the episode here. They are such an influential band. And I know some people who don't very much care for The Cure. <laughs> and I almost, I, I kind of get it. But at the same time, it's like, no, I don't think you understand. Like this band, they have such a way. And you were talking about this earlier, Guy, about the way that certain bands create an atmosphere. And I think that. The Cure is one of those bands 
that has such a way of creating this atmospheric vibe. And there are other bands that know how to do this, but they do it in such a way that seems, for lack of a better word, grounded. The music seems solid, yet at the same time, it takes you somewhere. It's got this like air to it. It's hard for me to articulate, but you know, when I was listening back to this album, that's what I, I kind of locked in on was that sense of like being transported somewhere mm. because of, you know, the synths and the way that everything is happening in the background, but all of the other instruments are kind of doing something that is a little bit more tangible. I totally agree. I, I think you've expressed it really well. Um, I think there's a couple of things there. Is is you mentioned about the people that don't get it. I remember seeing The Cure live, and I went with a really good friend of mine, and he felt it was the most boring two and a half hours of his life. And I thought, and I thought it was one of the best. I thought it was one of the best few hours. You know, when I wow. first listened to Disintegration, the friend who introduced it to me said, "You got to get, you know, you got to get lost in pictures of you. You, you, you know, it's not concise. The fact that." it does kind of wind and it's labyrinthine and you get lost in it is the yeah, point. Right. It's not concise. It's not post-punk in that way. That's the richness. I think it's yeah. got this idea tying it together as decay is beautiful, yep. which has always been a very oh, big yeah. idea for me in my writing that, that disintegration is more beautiful than anyone or anything being pristine. I think that yeah. lyrically what it does is it goes into this sense of lost opportunities and within the text of a song trying to recreate, recreate, the situation in which there was a lost romantic opportunity and relive it. That was so powerful to me. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Yeah. So there's a few things going on for me on that. It's a great album. Um, it's funny. So I was listening to it this morning and uh, my wife was like, she's one of those people who was like, how can you listen to this? It's so boring. And I was like, <laughs> and I was like, like Beyonce, does, 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 does it, she's like, they're overrated. But she, and I'm you like, took the wedding ring off, yeah, exactly. you put it on the table. I was like, no, that's yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> to me, but, you've just crossed, oh, this is a problem. Yeah. No, it's 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 so funny because she was like, she's like, don't get me wrong. She's like, I love the fact that you can sit down and appreciate all this music and, you know, and like really, really hear it and listen to it. But she's like, I just need something that's just always like high energy and and Fair fun. Enough. And I said, no, I, I get mean, that. I totally get that. Yeah, listen, so everybody I, listens to music. I was going to say, everyone experiences know? music differently, and like you don't. Yeah, you know, we're different. Some people can only listen to certain things and certain genres and whatever, and that's that's to each their own. But we all are able well, to. <laughs> we're all able to <laughs> sit down and appreciate. I can sit down and literally like, it, even if I, I might not like the music, but I can sit down and literally listen to anything and appreciate sure. that music and say like, wow, yeah. like this is really good. It's not my thing, but it's really good. I think that that maybe that's the musician in us. Exactly. Exactly. You know what I mean? I think that if you're going to be a musician, you really need to just be open about a lot of things musically and, you know, try to be as objective as, as you possibly can when you're listening to something that you may not may not be your your thing so to speak exactly for me the cure though it's a vibe you know i know that if i and this may be counterintuitive but if i'm feeling down if i mm. feel like shit mm. i want that's what i seek out i i want mm. like i need to listen to the cure right now i feel depressed i feel like alone and i need there, to hear this there's that connection I need this like that's the connection it really it is you know it's uh, uh it's cathartic Absolutely. In a way. I think it goes even, I think you're quite absolutely right what you say about being a musician. I think that there must be an element of, of empathy that you, that, you, that you have to to find those layers in it and to need to see that mirrored externally somehow. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I think 
there's there's a few things that are going on. You know, it's interesting the habits you get into with albums. When I used to live in the north of England, which is really cold, I would always listen to Disintegration during the winter. Yep. Yeah. And I would always listen to Plain Song, and and it reminds me of of sitting at bus stops and the bus not turning up and being utterly miserable and finding a kind of a comfort like having this album wrapped around me and it must have been yeah. an externalization of the kind of difficulty i felt at the time so i've got a real relationship with it you know sure. it, it's not for it's not for kids this album like <laughs> yeah you, you know if it, you can't you can't really try and bowl someone over if, if they're not in that frame of mind but <laughs> yeah. if they are in that frame of mind it, it will devastate them, I think. Exactly. Sure. I remember the first time I heard Plain Song. I'm going to give a shout out to my friend Matthew Phillips here. I'd visit him in Edinburgh and he gave me um, Disintegration. I listened to it in the on the train from Edinburgh back to Newcastle. And I remember hearing Plain Song and I remember thinking, I had a hangover. I drank a lot of vodka and I remember thinking, <laughs> I, it's just the hangover. Like that, it can't have been that good. Like, we'll listen to it again. We'll, 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 listen, we'll listen to it again in a minute. You're just in a fucked up place. Yeah, and then I yeah. listen to it again. And it's like, to me, it's like a religious text it's like he's singing from some dead sea scroll that he's found yeah. on plain song and every word he feels in his bones and then i was just listening to it like well we're in real trouble here like this is it was like meeting someone and going well i know we're going to have a relationship that's how i felt when i heard it <laughs> that's, that's amazing, a, that is amazing. i love that i really do i'm just gushing right now so i apologize well we'd have been in real trouble if we weren't on the same page with this, but it seems like we all are. That's true. i think so yeah you're <laughs> absolutely right man you just kept going on about like another album instead that's a better uh, version of yeah. it but that's not what's happening right now <laughs> i mean is this your favorite cure uh yeah. record it is. Oh yeah, I it's feel so good. Yeah. yeah, it would be an act of betrayal, like to say anything else. You know, I love. I was going to say I love pornography. That doesn't sound very good. Does it? <laughs> I love the album. I love the album pornography. Um, no disintegration. Yeah, disintegrations. Yeah, it's one of my one favorite albums of all time. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Such great songs. I don't know if there's a standout track for you. Maybe it's Plain Song. Yeah. It is. Is that the, is that your your favorite quote unquote? Like a, yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it would be. The song I'd want played at my funeral, you know. If, if I can't oh, get heavy, man. if I can't get heavy in a discussion about disintegration, where can I get heavy? Like that's how I feel about it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or going down the aisle or something, you know. That'd be a nice word. Yeah. Sure, sure. That is a great song. Uh, I think for me, it might be lullaby. Okay. Because that talk about layers, you know, and 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 getting lost in like a labyrinth of of sound and and just like. Mm. Fuck man, those violins and just like I, I just I, I cannot get enough of that song. Um, what about you, Chris? Is there any kind of standout track for you? I was gonna say a few, but I, I think it's plain song for me. Like, because I was gonna say pictures of you. I really like that song too. But I, I I'm yeah, gonna, love songs great. Love so songs good, good songs too. I know, album. I know. I'm gonna I'm gonna stick with plain song. Nice, because that's just yeah, that's just a phenomenal track. Yeah, totally. Chris, do you have any interesting facts? Any fun facts? Which does it doesn't even sound like <laughs> there's <laughs> anything. Anything can be remotely considered fun when talking about this. <laughs> but uh, I like using that word here. So, any fun? I facts? actually think. Um, I mean, I think the first one here is kind of fun because it just shows Robert Smith as you know, like not just like this, you know, really depressed, like gothy, like, you know, guy that, you know, couldn't really talk to or something without having a depressing conversation. I don't know. That's, but, you know, <laughs> but it's just, it's just interesting. Cause so basically it was shortly before this album was recorded and definitely after Robert Smith would, would jokingly, he would tell his record label that he had a fear of flying just so he 
didn't have to uh, tour so much. Wow. But he he didn't have a fear of flying. But he would just <laughs> tell them that, so he didn't have to like fly all over the place just to do tours. So that was his way of getting out of touring so much <laughs> and being able to stay at home. <laughs> so I thought that was pretty funny. I was like, that puts him in a little bit of a different light. He's making up traumas that he doesn't have. It's as if he's not got enough trauma already. Yeah, he's making yeah. up additional ones. Like just kind of making light of those. Yeah, exactly. So I was just like, oh, it's like, oh, so he's a funny guy too. <laughs> yeah, he's got, I think he's got a great sense, yeah, sense of humor. Yeah. To me, a great sense of humor is like, and I don't, I, I don't want to offend, but I think that just, you know, British people have like a very unique kind of darker, just dry sense of humor. Yeah. And I think that he he's got that, oh, and I and I love well, that. Well, especially so. like a, I have the same. I, oh, no. oh, I have the same tone of voice when I'm joking that I have when I'm not joking. <laughs> it's like the the only difference is the content of what I say. That's you know? right. But I, I, yeah. I think I think there is a funness and a playfulness with the cure. I I know that the the love yeah. cats thing isn't to do with disintegration, but I actually, funny <laughs> enough, I have a chapter about. I talk a lot about disintegration in this in this book, and I talk about. Um, Maca- nice. McCavity, the mystery cat, which was McCavity was a fictional character in T.S. Eliot's poetry book, Old Possum's Book of Practical Cats. And there's a kind of um, lovable cuteness feline thing that goes on with the cure. And I know that Love Cats yeah. isn't on disintegration, but there's a bit of that going right. on in Lullaby. And do you know what I mean? Like, sure. There's a tiny bit of it, I think. There's definitely a, a bit of playfulness. Uh, I, you're, you're absolutely right. Spider-Man and all that. yeah, For sure. And this is another song that's not on Disintegration, but, um, oh God, what's the name? Friday I'm in Love. Okay. <laughs> that's so embarrassing. You, you uh, already knew. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so Friday I'm in Love, that song it is such a fuck you, <laughs> isn't it? It's like such a, but it's such a fun fuck you, <laughs> right? It's like, look at these guys. Yeah. They're taking pop music and they're flipping it on its head and they're saying like, listen to the ridiculousness of like what you people <laughs> will listen to and sing with such excitement and and you have no idea that literally the whole song is just, it's sarcasm. Well, Tim Pope brought that out a lot it's as sarcasm, well. It's sarcasm, the whole thing. I think the videos that Tim Pope did really brought out the playful side of, you know, in the wardrobe and it's shaking and all that. I remember reading an interview with um, Robert Smith and he's a genuinely fascinating guy because every, I don't know if he still does it now, but he would go out at three, four in the morning every night and just walk around because he liked seeing the world when it was dark and there was no one else around. You know, yeah. he really is like a gothic person in that way. And he wouldn't clean. You know, he lives in like, I imagine it's some kind of mansion, like in that film, This Is The Place. But like, he, he lives in a kind of a state of rich sort of squalor. He <laughs> he really does live the way he, he he writes his stuff. He He enjoys being scared. One of the things he says in the interview is he constantly tries to create a sense of like fear and dread in his <laughs> life. He enjoys that feeling. You know, he's a really, this goth stuff's not a joke for him. He, he's a proper sort of, there's a lovableness and a playfulness, but he likes being in those darker shades, I think. That's really interesting to hear. That makes me, you know, want to yeah. just all, all the more get deeper into your book and hear, read more about that. So go ahead, continue. Sorry, oh, we, we've... That's all right. Kinda... So um, interestingly enough, for fans of this album, you'll probably know this, but it was initially dismissed by the US label Electra as commercial suicide because the record label had actually sent Robert Smith a letter saying that although we think this album is like good, we also think 
that it's willfully obscene is what they is quoted as saying and then basically that they just <laughs> thought that insane. it wouldn't be received well at all and and then it ended up selling 2.7 million albums you know uh-huh. which actually propelled them into being what you know considered a stadium band being that they sold they could sell out huge stadiums these these people just don't know like i, I don't want to go on about it too much but i find it so strange how in the arts there's these gatekeepers like yes. record companies publishers yeah. agents and we have to sort of get past these gatekeepers but you know they don't yeah i was gonna say the same they thing don't. they don't, they don't. Like, their, their job is tied up yeah. their job is tied up with projecting the sense that they know otherwise they're out of a job but i just get sick of right. i just get sick of these stories like yeah, there could have been yeah. no disintegration thanks a lot you know when yes. didn't electra do the doors you know was yes. that did they not learn you would think <sighs> i don't get it that made me think, yeah, I was going to say exactly. that made me think of like, if you saw the Queen movie, what was going to be their hit album was just like, eh, the songs are too long, so it's not going to be good. And then they just, Queen. you know, and then they, they were like, ridiculous. all right. Yeah. Can you imagine <laughs> like, Bohemian Rhapsody I mean. like, like getting completely dude, gutted it's, and like turned into some fucking bullshit radio friendly song? The thing is, is that as artists, this insecurity is endemic. It's like we were talking earlier about Gary Newman selling 10 million and having an Ivan Novello. Right doesn't mean he's any more egotistical than he was at the beginning and yet these people yeah. are the gatekeepers who decide if it goes out or not and you know if they get their way there's no disintegration yeah they have this they have this idea yeah. of what a commercially like successful song is going to be they're like it has to be three minutes no more no less we talked about this with the uh, with ryan bowster right. who was on the show he was saying how mm-hmm. you know you want to talk about ego <laughs> meet a manager a publicist right. that's where the ego yeah. is you know I have a theory and that, about that, and that yeah I, I think I think it's because they're smart enough to know these people that art has this great value but they can't do it themselves so they, they want a bit of the light like they, they want to get in on that energy but but it's oh. a kind of a neurotic version of it yeah. so it's all about control yeah. and um, I'm cool. I'm part of it. Right. And they're they're just in an insecure state. Yes. I think anyone in the oh my I God. think anyone in the arts who's not an actual artist is in a state of insecurity and is kind of volatile. That's right. what I've learned. Like they wish you. I they wish they it. could do that. You, you, and they're like, this is the only way yeah. I can yeah. co- ride their coattails yeah. and be part I never, of it. I never feel more insecure. I never feel more. In, I'm not going to give like certain names of people. I no, with, no. But I never feel more insecure than when I'm with, in their company. You know, you go into the office. The first thing they talk about is, "Oh, you'll never guess who I had in yesterday," and and it's all about kind of um, how you now need to do what this person's doing. And it's like, what? What? You oh completely don't get what I'm doing. Right. You have no interest in it. It's from a position of insecurity all the time. And I have to work For with sure. these people. We all have to work with these people, but they're yeah. not artists. Yeah. Right. That's exactly yeah, right. Agreed. Yeah. Well, I've got one more. Just laying that hang there awkwardly. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Let's let's <laughs> let's fine. let's relish in that for a few minutes. Yeah. <laughs> no, but it's it's true. I'll edit that out. Uh, I have one more fact here, um, and it kind of goes along with the last one. So during the album's release, they didn't, but they could have laid claim to being the biggest band in the world of, at the time because they sold out at Wembley Stadium. And then two days later, they sold 30,000 tickets in one day and then had 44,000 people attend at their show at Giant Stadium. So, I mean, oh, that just shit. shows how huge of a following they had. And I just, it's just amazing because you're just like, wow, like, and that goes to show just how huge of an influence they are and still are today on so much of the music that I know that we listen to. Yeah, for sure. 
Well, Guy, we really uh, had a phenomenal time speaking with you uh, about music, about your book. We really appreciate you coming on. So thank you very much. It was fantastic. We did. We really appreciate your time. If you have anything that you'd like to say, any plugs, uh, any famous last words, well, it's, the floor it's is It's a real honor to talk with you guys. You're so knowledgeable about music. It's really fun to just talk with people who you know are totally on the same page about stuff. Thank you very much for having me on the show. I'm definitely a fan. I'll be checking it out. Thank you so much, Guy. Thank you. It was great having you. you on the show. And guys, definitely, please check out the book, Albion's Secret History. Again, if you enjoyed our conversation with Guy, there's no doubt in my mind that you are going to love his book. And thanks for listening, everyone. Follow us on Instagram at Taste of Vinyl and on Twitter at Taste Vinyl. And remember, you can never own too much vinyl. Later, guys. Later, guys.